I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Alan Rusperger, editor at Prospect, and today... I'm delighted to be joined by the distinguished American economist and professor at University of California, Berkeley, Barry Eichengreen, to discuss a fascinating essay he's written for the most recent issue of the magazine that we headlined, Is This How Globalization Ends? In the essay, Barry argues that the geopoliticals, rivalries and risks present a fatal threat to globalization. Barry, thank you so much for the uh, essay, which is uh, a, a great read, and thank you for joining us today. Um, perhaps we could trace the previous obituaries that have been written for globalization. Um, so you you say that um, people thought that uh, Brexit might do it, that COVID might do it, that Donald Trump might do it. Uh, just uh, talk about the moments at which people declared globalization dead, but which turned out to be premature. I think the turning point may have been the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. Um, the run-up to that crisis featured very large uh, cross-border financial flows, and we discovered quickly what people thought was a U.S. financial crisis centered in the subprime crisis was really a global crisis with German banks and other international banks being equally implicated. Um, that global financial crisis was then quickly followed by the euro area crisis centered on Greece. But again, we quickly discovered that uh, the financial and related problems were broader. There was a crackdown on financial excesses. Following that, um, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, uh, as it was formally called in the United States, and a variety of, of global reforms spearheaded by the Ball Committee of Banking Supervisors starting in, in in 2010, many people thought that spelled the end of financial globalization in particular. And then we had Donald Trump and his tariffs. We had COVID-19 and supply chain disruptions, leading many people to conjecture, to speculate, to extrapolate that the end of financial globalization was now accompanied by the end of 
uh, global trade as we'd known it. So that's how I see the uh, um, events playing out over time. And what's striking about them, of course, is none of them spelled the end uh, of globalization, which slowed, to be sure, but by no means disappeared. You you write that um, the, in the response to the financial crisis, Wall Street was bailed out, Main Street wasn't. And that led to a kind of populism which Donald Trump capitalized on. How significant was that populism in turning the tide in people's perceptions of their own personal interests in globalization? It, it was quite significant. So you're referring, Alan, to the Occupy movement in the United States and then the global Occupy movement that uh, accompanied or, 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 or followed that. There had been a naive belief naive and misguided, that globalization automatically raises all boats, makes everybody better off. Basic economic analysis would challenge that naive point of view. Um, basically, international trade theory, I won't go into the um, technical details here, does uh, point directly to the conclusion that Globalization works to the advantage of some, but to the disadvantage of, of others. Um, the China shock, where China enters the global economy big time at the beginning of the 21st century, worked to the disadvantage of less skilled workers in advanced countries like the U.S. and the U.K., which suddenly found themselves competing with a billion additional relatively low-paid workers in China and other emerging markets. So the Occupy movement was partly about how uh, globalization worked to the advantage of the elites, but not the masses. It was partly about how those elites were able to manipulate the political process to their advantage, such that big Wall Street firms got bailed out but mainstream companies did not uh, after 2008. So uh, in my article for Prospect, I uh, make reference to the new book by the MIT economist Deron Asimoglu and Simon Johnson, who point out that uh, the big Wall Street firms paid out more than uh, a, a, a thousand bonuses of a million dollars or more a piece using funds they obtained from the U.S. government as part of the bailout of Wall Street. So uh, I think the Occupy movement uh, pointed up the fact that globalization doesn't automatically work to everyone's advantage, that the advantaged are able to use the political process to their benefit, and that we need to think more critically about globalization. I'm not arguing that Donald Trump, for one, thought more critically about the process, but he was able to capitalize on this inchoate uh, feeling of dissatisfaction with uh, uneven distributional aspects of the process.
And in, in a way, the, the language of Donald Trump mirrors that of the occupied movement. Uh, if you want to make American great again, he was effectively arguing that has to be at somebody else's expense, and we can't do that uh, at the same time as give all our money and jobs to China, for instance. Yeah. So so Trump was very much about how China was ripping off the United States and how free trade is not necessarily free, um, how it was important to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States, a theme that has very much not gone away uh, in what one may call the post-Trump years or the post-Trump interlude too early to tell. So Trump was partly about um, uh, anti-elite rhetoric, but more seriously, I think, about anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant, anti-China sentiment, which is very real in the United States in particular with this country's isolationist tradition. At what point did that isolationist uh, instinct begin to uh, merge with concerns over security? I do believe that uh, these concerns about security became uh, part of the political dialogue in the United States during um, the Trump years because there were a, a, a number of China hawks, if you will, uh, uh, advisors hostile to China in the Trump administration. My own view, uh, you can hear my politics leaking into my uh, rhetoric here, is that um, those views became more serious and better articulated and hopefully more focused under the Biden administration. But it is striking how that uh, melding of isolationist tradition on the one hand with current security concerns carried over from Trump to Biden. If you had to describe to um, a non-American how Biden's policy towards China differs from that of Trump, how would you characterize that? Well, I think um, the Biden administration aspires to articulate and implement a more focused set of policies that uh, reduce U.S. dependence on China, where national security is critically involved, and seek to reduce U.S. investment in and export of technology to China, uh, uh, again, in areas where national security and military parity are obvious and important. So Trump wanted, and when he talks about a second term, wants an across-the-board tariff on imports from China and uh, imports from other countries, generally, where the Trump administration is concerned, not with semiconductors, broadly speaking, but with uh, high-tech semiconductor, semiconductors and manufacturing equipment that can be used in artificial intelligence applications in particular. So I think there are real questions about whether that focused strategy is viable, whether it's feasible or not, or 
whether it will lead to uh, broader controls on U.S. exports of technology to China. But that's the uh, aspiration. As Janet Yellen said, when our Treasury Secretary went to China, we, uh, the U.S., want to maintain our, our economic links and our economic inter interdependence. We want to focus our controls on that small subset of products and technologies with national security implications. You write in your piece how difficult it is for other nations to stay neutral in this soft war. And you give the example of the uh, the Dutch ASML firm, which is a big manufacturer of um, very specific kinds of uh, microchips. Uh, and in the end, they had no option but to jump with the Americans. Uh, you see that as a pattern that is going to be true in future. That however, other countries might want to stay out of this. It's going to be difficult to do so. That scenario really depends, I think, on how U.S.-China relations evolve from here. If tensions continue to grow and there are mo more close calls, if you will, in the South China Sea, then there will be no atheists in, in, in the foxholes. Um, other governments will have to choose on whose side they want to be if they want to continue to trade with the United States. They will have to limit their trade and exports of sensitive technologies to China. If uh, more recent U.S. efforts to kind of ratchet down those tensions and have fewer hot air balloon incidents prove successful, um, it will be easier for Germany or India or whomever to continue to do business both with China and with the United States on a on 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 a broad basis. But I, I do think the more likely scenario for better or for worse is that these tensions between the US and China remain severe, if you will, and that pressure on third countries like Germany and India to limit their trade with China in order to retain their access to the U.S. market. We will, we will see more of that over time. After the break, we'll talk more about how geopolitical forces are threatening globalization. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app, and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. So visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Can you talk a bit about Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and the effect that that is likely to have, that, that is uh, a, a measure that will pump billions into hopefully uh, green technologies. But it's a very protectionist act, isn't it? It is. So there is the Inflation Reduction Act. There is the CHIPS Act. There are uh, uh, a range of uh, U.S. policies uh, advanced by the Biden administration and, and passed by the Congress that favor domestic production over um, free trade as we've known it. So, uh, electric vehicles, of course, are, a, a, a classic case in point where there has to be a certain level of domestic production, domestic content, domestically produced batteries, et cetera, that will advantage, uh, uh, production in the United States over imports from other countries that are very worrisome to um, Korean exporters of motor vehicles, um, Asian exporters of semiconductors, and the like. So um, when, when I was a student, I learned that one of the classic exceptions to the economist's argument for free trade was the national security argument that... Um, there is a sound, valid, consistent argument for producing stuff that is essential to the national security at home. So there it, it is, is an argument, and we were uh, reminded of the advantages of local production by the COVID crisis and the associated supply chain disruptions of producing uh, those advanced semiconductors used by U.S. companies, at least to an extent, in the United States. And that's what we're seeing in response to the CHIPS Act and the like, the big uh, Korean and Taiwanese semiconductor firms building fabs in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas, not the fabs that produce the very most advanced semiconductors. Um, the layer immediately below that. And again, I, I, I think the issue here is whether there is a slippery slope or not. Once you begin to identify certain items as essential to the national security, where do you draw the line? And how much of a threat do these practices 
opposed to globalization. Uh, and again, I would uh, insist that the answer depends on how U.S.-China tensions develop from here. The greater those tensions, the more slippery will be the slope and the greater the tendency to pass legislation and provide subsidies to um, bring production home to the U.S. Is, is this all about China uh, and America and the other countries that are getting caught up in that, or are there other tensions uh, in the world which are contributing to the the, um, the stagnation in, in globalization? Clearly, there are other tensions, and Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine is the obvious example. Um, Russia is only 3% of the global economy. It, it is, is the world's gas station and an important producer of minerals. But I, I don't think the future of globalization turns on whether the Russian economy re remains engaged with the West or becomes a pariah long-term. However, um, Mr. Putin's example does remind everyone that the world is a risky place, that there are an awful lot of autocrats out there, that um, there are other flashpoints. So I would say that um, the future of globalization turns first and foremost on U.S.-China relations, but these other global flashpoints are, 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 are part of the backdrop that make um, U.S. relations with China so delicate. And a lot of casual readers of your piece might find it quite surprising that they, they, they'll use Amazon, and we'll use Apple, you'll use Meta. Um, it feels as though we're living still in a very globalized world. So how significant are the changes that you're describing? We do continue to live in a very globalized world. So we're seeing some reconfiguration of globalization. Everybody is talking about moving from um, just-in-time to just-in-case production. People are talking about friend shoring and de-risking, which are changes in the structure of our global economy, but not uh, fundamental deglobalization. So Apple is moving some iPhone production to India. Apple has moved some iPhone production to Vietnam. So that's a, a, a change in the nature of globalization. It may represent some movement in the direction of higher cost production because workers are less productive in India than they are in China. And when you have higher cost production, you will have less, uh, uh, a lower degree of trade. Um, so I, I, I view that as a, a change in the um structure or the details of globalization as we know it, but not a fundamental deglobalization of our world. Similarly, in finance, since the global financial crisis, we've seen a decline in cross-border bank lending, um, but no decline 
China aside in the last couple of years in foreign direct investment by corporations and other financial flows through bond markets and equity markets and the like. So in this last respect, I think what we've seen uh, in, in, in terms of, of U.S.-China financial relations in, 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 in the last year or so is quite striking. There's been a sharp fall in foreign direct investment by U.S. corporations in China because they're worried about the political risk emanating from both sides. In, 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 in terms of venture capital investment in China, U.S. venture capital uh, investment in China has fallen by three quarters, by 75% in the last year. So something is going on there. But again, I, I would argue that this is affecting the structure of, of globalization. The U.S. is investing less in China, but more in other places. U.S. companies are producing less in China, but more in other places, epitomized by Vietnam and India. Does the world become a slightly less safe place as globalization stalls, that, that if you haven't got these trading links and economic links, there's um, a, a greater risk of conflict? Once upon a time, I would have given a, a confident answer to that question. Once upon a time, meaning 25 years ago, when we admitted China to the World Trade Organization and the belief then on the part of the um, Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administration and Tony Blair's government was that integrating China into the global economy would create pressure for China to democratize and become uh, a player in a peaceful, harmonious global world. It didn't exactly turn out that way, that economic integration leads to a more peaceful world. One's reminded of um, predictions that with economic integration, with the first wave of globalization, a great war was impossible. And we know how that turned out. So I don't think... Uh, Many people, speaking for myself, I, I no longer am confident that economic integration has those positive spillovers into the political and, 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 and diplomatic sphere. Finally, Barry, you're a professor, so you think in a nuanced and subtle way, but to a simple reader trying to work out the pluses and minuses of globalization, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, where does the balance lie for you? The balance is still strongly positive in my, my view that um, e economic growth in China and other emerging markets has lifted billions of people out of poverty. And that process would have been impossible without China's ability to export and without uh, um, the globalization of the last three or so decades. I similarly think that European integration, we, we, we have uh, um, tiptoed around the Brexit issue, but uh, 
I similarly think that European integration has been a net positive from the point of view uh, uh, of growth and uh, economic development in the European Union. Um, but the point to go back to the beginning of our conversation, Alan, is that we lost sight of the fact that those benefits are not universal. They're, they're not automatically shared by all. And that if we're going to avoid, um, populist out, outbursts and political support for demagogues, we have to compensate the losers, the, the, the left behind to use the rhetoric that, uh, people were using in 2016 when Trump was elected, when the Brexit referendum occurred. Uh, and, and, and I think that governments are, uh, making efforts to deal with the problems of, of, of the left behind, some governments more successfully than others. And that makes me, um, on balance, confident that while globalization will have its ups and downs, it's here to stay because it's, um, benefits outweigh its costs and governments recognize the fact that those benefits are not necessarily universally shared. Thank you, Barry, for talking to us today. And thank you again for such a uh, magisterial essay and the current prospect, which is, of course, available online. And for listeners at home, if you enjoyed this podcast, grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes also a fascinating piece by Matt Dancola on the missing centre in politics, uh, Samira Shackle on the great uh, documentary filmmaker, Norma Percy. You've probably never heard of her, but I'm sure you've watched her films uh, and much, much more. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.